Welcome to the NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. On this podcast, you'll find thought-provoking insight into critical topics surrounding the healthcare industry. Each episode features Nelson Mullins healthcare attorneys and special guests who offer a variety of experience in healthcare. Hello, and welcome to the Nelson Mullins uh, Talks Healthcare Podcast. Uh, where we focus on hot topics in the healthcare industry to help our listeners stay ahead of the curve of matters that we deal with often or may be dealing with in the future. My name is Gabe Imperato. I'm a partner in the Fort Lauderdale office of Nelson Mullins. And today I'm joined by my partner, Edgar Bueno, who is a partner in our Savannah office of Nelson Mullins. Uh, Let me start off by uh, talking generally about the United States False Claims Act, an important statute that uh, really drives uh, a lot of what uh, we uh, have to deal with in the healthcare industry, both in, in the direct sense in enforcement matters involving the False Claims Act, but the sentinel effect of that risk uh, for healthcare organizations and their efforts to maintain a uh, compliant uh, activity and an and a effective compliance program. So the False Claims Act prohibits the submission of false and fraudulent claims to federal health care programs in, in, in this context, uh, using a false record or statement to get a claim paid. Uh, conspiring to do either one of those two things, conspiracy being nothing more than an agreement between two or more parties to engage in the uh, conduct in question. And then lastly, um, what us lawyers call the Reverse False Claims Act provision, which uh, prohibits a party from taking any action to conceal or uh, uh, avoid paying back money to the government that's owed to the government. Uh, This particular provision uh, did not have uh, much action prior to 2009 and 2010, but at that time Congress uh, amended the False Claims Act to further define the term obligation in this provision of the False Claims Act. And the way that uh, they defined obligation uh, essentially boiled down to liability for an organization or an individual who failed to return a known overpayment. Um, This obligation existed in the Medicare statute generally before 2009 and 2010, but once it was Uh, further refined in this fashion and defined in the False Claims Act, of course, it made it subject to False Claims Act actions. uh, And therefore, that meant that it could be raised by a whistleblower who is entitled to bring a case forward under the False Claims Act uh, if they have direct and independent knowledge of the submission of false and fraudulent claims. Accordingly, at that point, uh, the healthcare industry and and major healthcare organizations became justifiably concerned 
uh, with their exposure for this liability because uh, it could be put forward by by a whistleblower. Uh, let me talk a little bit about that feature of the False Claims Act. Anyone can be a whistleblower. Uh, anyone uh, uh, technically who has direct and independent knowledge of the submission of false claims. If someone feels that they have that knowledge and that's occurring, uh, they can file what we call a KETAM complaint under the False Claims Act, uh, which will be filed with the clerk of the court in the federal jurisdiction, in the appropriate federal jurisdiction. The clerk will seal that complaint. It will not be served on the defendant, but it will be served on the U.S. attorney slash Department of Justice, who at that point must investigate the allegations made by the whistleblower and his or her attorney and decide whether uh, those allegations justify uh, intervening in the case and advising the court that the Department of Justice is going to take over the case and move it forward. The Department of Justice does that statistically over the years in one, roughly one out of every four cases, one of every four or five cases. And in the other cases, it typically declines to intervene. And at that point, if it does notify the court that it's declining to intervene, uh, the whistleblower and his or her attorney at that point has the option of moving the case forward on their own, which fortunately or unfortunately occurs much more often now than it did 25 years ago. 25 years ago, if the government declined to intervene, typically the whistleblower and his or her attorney would uh, voluntarily dismiss the case and, and go away. That doesn't happen as often anymore. And it, it means that once these whistleblower cases are filed, that there is a probable uh, journey involved for defendants in those cases that will involve significant time and significant uh, expense to deal with the exposure uh, of liability under the False Claims Act. Uh, the other consequence of uh, the False Claims Act phenomena and, and the whistleblower feature is, is that it, it almost puts our healthcare clients, healthcare organizations, individuals involved with uh, compliance and, and responsible for the activities of organizations in a literal fishbowl existence. Um, our experience over the years is that uh, when there's a report in an organization of non-compliant activity, um, the organization best be responding to that quickly, diligently, uh, not a rush to judgment, but definitely with a protocol for response that, uh, that will drive the issue to uh, a determination of what facts are associated with it, what if any corrective action is necessary, what if any exposure may be involved and um, and what should be done about it by the organization? Uh, the the bottom line is that once one of these once non-compliant activity uh, surfaces in an organization or that somebody knows about it, 
the organization is literally in a rush to the courthouse with your next whistleblower. That's why it's so important uh, to address these situations. And and I like to say to to any anyone who will listen that a healthcare organization in the current environment ignores reports of non-compliant activity at significant risk of dealing with it in a con in the context of a false claims act case uh, with the involvement of the Department of Justice. Um, I, I would add in connection with that, that roughly speaking, if the organization is able to respond to a report of non-compliant activity before it becomes uh, the subject of a False Claims Act investigation by the Department of Justice, uh, the organization can deal with that situation uh, in a, in a uh, diligent but but um, uh, methodical manner, and and the cost to the organization, even if they have to pay, repay an overpayment amount and any kind of penalty associated with it, you know we're talking like a hundred thousand dollar investment. If you have to deal with the same situation after it becomes a whistleblower case with the Department of Justice uh, examining the allegations, doing their investigation, deciding whether or not to intervene in the case, now you're talking more like a half a billion dollar investment, 300, 400, 500,000, depending on how far of the journey has to be traveled. Uh, before uh, you can get off the highway. And sometimes that that can be an extended expense. We've had some clients who have had insurance uh, associated for the cost of this defense. And I think that that's very important uh, because it does give the organization the ability to uh, uh, deal with the costs of properly defending against a situation like this. Uh, for those organizations that don't have that insurance, then they're going to be coming out of pocket, uh, and it and it can be a a significant cost. Uh, finally, I'll say that um, an organization's tools for managing this risk is the effectiveness of their compliance program, um, their reporting mechanisms. Uh, their culture of anti-retaliation for reporting, their ability to conduct effective internal investigations in response to reports, uh, their ability to identify the facts associated with any potential overpayment or misconduct, uh, their ability to take corrective action, and uh, their uh, ability to get, uh, be appropriately advised and assisted if it requires a self-disclosure in order to get a release from potential liability to protect the organization from a whistleblower maintaining a case for the very same activity uh, and ultimately to to move on to the next matter that can come up that is your ability for managing this risk uh, it, it is a acute risk in the healthcare industry um, there's been in excess of, on average, over 600 new cases filed a year uh, under the False Claims Act, the large majority by whistleblowers, 
80% of those cases in the healthcare industry, recoveries in the millions and billions of dollars by the government, uh, no disagreement between both sides of the political aisle on the usefulness of the False Claims Act. Uh, the Department of Justice and the Secretary of Health and Human Services commitment to the False Claims Act has been unwavering since the early 90s and will not be changing in the foreseeable future because it's a moneymaker for the government, bringing money back, recovering money back into, into the federal health programs in the federal FISC. So with that, um, if you're unsuccessful in managing the risk or even successful or partially successful, but you still have a whistleblower to deal with, which can occur, uh, you'll, be on, you'll be on a journey, uh, which I will turn over to Edgar Bueno to explain what that might look like and, and, and what, what will be the necessary response for any organization who starts down that road. Edgar? Yeah, thanks, Gabe. So as, as Gabe mentioned, the complaint, the False Claims Act complaint is filed under seal, um, and it could be sealed for quite some time um, without knowledge um, by the defendants that they've been named <clears throat> or even accused of uh, wrongdoing. Um, so what does an investigation look like, um, considering it's the, the matter's first uh, started off uh, being sealed in, in court. Well, usually the first sign that you are um, involved in a false claims act investigation is you are in receipt or receive a um, subpoena for documents or a civil investigative demand, which is the, the equivalent of, of, of a subpoena uh, authorized by the false claim uh, false claims act. Um, you know, the, the first step upon receipt of the CID or subpoena is to determine um, whether your client is a, um, you know, a subject or a target of the investigation, or um, they could be just a witness. <clears throat> your client may not be under investigation. Uh, they just may have information that the government wants. Um, or needs as part of um, it's looking at, at certain allegations and you possess certain information or documents. Um, th that does happen um, where you are not the focus, but uh, if you do find yourself um, or your clients the, the focus or target of a False Claims Act investigation, um, you have to be proactive. Um, you know, I think a uh, first step is to assemble a team to respond to the CID or subpoena. And that usually means uh, appointing a custodian to gather the documents that have been requested by the government, um, to hire consultants as part of the inv internal investigation that you'll be conducting, as well as working with either um, in-house or outside counsel um, as part of a, a, a team effort um, to really figure out what happened, um, when it happened, why it happened, uh, and to respond to the demand, the various demands that the government will, uh, uh, will, will give you during the course of an investigation. Um, practically speaking, 
um, one of the first steps is to implement a legal hold upon receipt of the CID or subpoena. Um, and what that means is that no document, no routine document destruction, um, uh, you know, should occur during uh, the entire time of the investigation. And uh, the legal hold needs to be maintained and uh, broadcasted um, to your entire organization. Um, you should also, if outside counsel is uh, consulted, um, you should make every effort to maintain the attorney-client privilege, um, and which essentially means li limiting communications to those people who really need to know about the investigation and the response um, to the subpoena uh, and the communications that you will begin with the government. Um, this is particularly um, problematic if there are other defendants or other subjects and targets of the investigation, um, in which case, as defense counsel, you may want to consider a joint defense agreement or a common interest agreement so that uh, your efforts collectively um, uh, you know, can, can, can work together in order to, to um, you know, put up the, the best defense. Um, because when you are speaking with the government, um, you will want to know, um, you know, exactly what happened, why it happened, uh, whatever misconduct that they believe um, has occurred. You will need to know um, uh, everything that you possibly can about that, and that can only occur with uh, free communications. Um, and at the correct and proper time, those communications, the privilege that that cloaks those communications with your attorneys. Uh, you may need to waive that privilege, but up until that time, you should do your level best to maintain um, the privilege that uh, uh, that holds uh, throughout these communications. Uh, the other aspect of, of when you assemble a team, um, I think that's also the first signal to begin the dialogue with the government, with the assistant United States attorney who's been assigned to this matter, um, and begin a dialogue with him or her to understand what the government's concerns are. Because many times uh, the government um, may not know when the complaint is filed, you know, what exactly happened or how it happened or who is involved. Um, so they're learning facts as well um, during your in internal investigation. So the open dialogue is is to share share that information um, to educate the government um, to even narrow the scope of the allegations um, or the issues. Um, and you know, a key part of that is to get the proper and accurate narrative as to um, you know the conduct in question um, and that again involves uh, a thorough uh, internal investigation being done and then sharing those results at the appropriate time with the government um, at the same time you do have a subpoena for documents usually that you have to respond to um, and your custodian has, has to do a reasonable and diligent search for all those documents um, they're usually uh, overly broad. Um, you can try to speak to, again, the assistant U.S. attorney and narrow the scope of, of the subpoena. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it's been our experience that there there is just a a uh, vast volume of documents that the government asks for as part of these false cla false claims act investigations. Um, and those documents will have to be reviewed by the government. But you know, prior to turning them turning them over, um, your internal investigation and your team um, that is conducting the internal investigation uh, must look at and review those documents before being uh, produced to the government. Um, hopefully, when you are done producing the records, and that could be. Um, months, maybe even a year or two, uh, you know, after receipt of the subpoena. But at at some point, the government will want to hear from you um, and your team about what uh, your internal investigation has revealed and what uh, what views or opinions you have about the allegations. Now, because at this point, when the subpoena has been issued um, and you're doing your in internal investigation you're di and you're dialoguing with the government, they've only heard from one side, and that's usually the relator, um, the whistleblower. Um, so again, uh, you have to be proactive um, in your internal investigation, uh, create a timeline of events, uh, know who the key players are in the conduct that's in question. You have to interview employees. Uh, prepare witness statements um, and, uh, and obviously locate the key documents as part of the, the subpoena response. Um, this also includes um, searching for um, electronic communications, emails. The, the, e the emails are particularly important because it, those tend to show uh, knowledge um, of conduct um, and maybe even intent. Um, uh, um, and usually, you know, those documents are are broadcasted and used to show the level of knowledge of um, uh, of conduct uh, and intent. Um, you should also be looking for the guidance that you received uh, regarding the conduct in question. For example, in the healthcare context, maybe it's a, a billing question uh, where you've re received government guidance from the contractor, from the Medicare contractor. You know, those types of government guidance documents also are important to show knowledge um, and materiality under the False Claims Act, which are terms of both are ter defined terms under the False Claims Act, but which become uh, very, very important uh, in terms of shaping your defenses. Um, and again, at some point, it could be years, uh, a year or two, um, you know, the government will want to hear from you um, and your side, and you will want to put your best foot forward, your best defenses. Uh, you'll want to highlight the key documents, um, maybe even share the timeline. Again, share portions of your internal investigation um, that show a lack of knowledge um, or your compliance efforts um, you know, to, to bill appropriately um, with the intention of, hope, of hopefully uh, closing, getting the government to close the investigation um, or, or shut down the investigation. Now, with that said, even if you are successful in getting the government to decline the case, uh, the relator 
uh, does have the ability to continue um, with the litigation, even in decline cases where the government does not dismiss the case, uh, but allows the relator to proceed. So the investigation, while you've dealt with the government, responded to the subpoena, um, the investigation may continue, or even worse, the, the litigation may continue um, as brought forth by the relator. Um, and, and again, that in, uh, increases the, the time, commitment, and resources and expenses uh, to these False Claims Act uh, matters. Um, but under the statute, that is just the reality in which many healthcare organizations uh, live by. And if the relator you know, pursues the matter, you, again, the um, the best defense is a vigorous offense. Um, and that you know begins with uh, a thorough and complete internal investigation. So in terms of, uh, you know, just to summarize, when you uh, know you are the subject um, or even the target of an investigation, you know, these are some of the steps um, that you're looking at in the journey. Um, that you're looking at, and if you begin the dialogue with the government soon enough, um, you may be able to, um, you know, get the government what it what it needs and what it's looking for, um, and hopefully close the investigation. Um, that's not always the case. You may not be successful in convincing the relator to uh, to proceed, um, but at the same time. Um, you know, you you are doing what you need to do in uh, documenting your best efforts, um, you know, to uh, to respond uh, to the complaint and um, at the appropriate time, uh, if the case proceeds to litigation, you know, you have the evidence and you you have the documentation for a uh, vigorous uh, motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. Um, I'm nearly out of time. Um, Gabe, was there anything you wanted to add uh, before we uh, we move forward? Uh, no, except um, just to repeat that, look, your 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 first line of defense against this exposure is uh, developing um, an effective compliance program. Uh, you know, even the most effective compliance programs are not going to be completely prophylactic against this exposure, but they really will assist an organization on, uh, in, in, ter in, in terms of managing, managing this risk. Um, anyway, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Edgar and me uh, or this topic, uh, please visit uh, nelsonmullins.com. Uh, we'll be having other podcasts in the future uh, about this subject uh, and other enforcement and compliance related matters. Uh, so please keep uh, a lookout for uh, other topics that'll be uh, featured on NM Talks Healthcare. Thank you very much.